Well, hello, everybody. I am Todd Hunter, and I am delighted to be at the Telos Collective again this year. It's the honest to God truth. I've said it to lots of friends that um, I, I would uh, come to the Telos Collective stuff if I wasn't leading it. I mean, every year that we have this, I learn so much from our teachers and just have a great time having conversations with you all. And I know this year will be the same, that I'll learn something from David and Esau and Ashley. And I'm, I'm hoping we can all learn some stuff together that is not just learning, but as we say in the Telos Collective, that it becomes actionable, that it becomes livable things, things that we practice in our own lives and in the lives of our conversations. So my role in this opening session, as it is every year in the Telos Collective, is to kind of set the stage for the other things that other speakers will say that are maybe a little more particular or focused than what I might have to say to set the stage for the issue of missional leadership. What I want to do in this first session is under the theme of Missional leadership is a participation in the life that Jesus is presently living. And I want to show that our task then as leaders is to reveal this Jesus life, to cast a vision for living in it, to call people to form their souls for it, and to facilitate the reception of the Spirit that will enable it. Now, I know that's a mouthful. We'll take them one step at a time. So number one, I think core to missional leadership in our day is revealing the life that Jesus is now living. I mean, if we gave a theological pop quiz and said, Jesus is alive, yes or no, everybody would say, well, of course, yes. But what I'm trying to do here is work on your imagination a bit so that this becomes uh, not just the doctrine of the resurrection, but a lived reality so that we get up every day in the middle of something that's already going on and that's been going on for a long time, that Jesus is always already at work in the world and that it's he who is alive. He's presently living a life just like you and I are. He's leading and sustaining and supervising mission towards his telos, towards the purposes of his father. So here's a way I think that this becomes practical. You can't have a mathetes, a disciple, right? A student, an apprentice, as that Greek word is sometimes translated. You can't have a mathetes without a rabboni. And you want this rabboni to be alive, right? Otherwise, we're just studying. Um, it can seem like, at least, we're just studying uh, um, uh, bits of literature. Now, of course, we all know the Bible's alive and powerful and all that. And of course it is. And, and the Word of God is alive, and we all experience it that way. But again, I think that's a, that's a slightly different thing than actually knowing that our rabbi is alive. And we are his students, we're his apprentices, we're giving ourselves to him as his followers, his disciples, and we do it in a way that he's alive. Now, the reason I think this is so important, that imagination is so important, and I don't mean an imagination like untrue. I mean like living into the, the imaginative elements of that, that it is true. The reason this is so important that the church has this vision is that we want to have, with reference to Jesus, what he had with his father. Now, have you ever wondered, for instance, when Jesus walked through the pool of Bethesda, and he sees all the people around who have significant health issues. And he goes up to the one man and heals him. How did Jesus know that he was the one his father was moving him to heal? And we want that same sort of relationship with Jesus. That as his students, as his apprentices, we know that he's alive to us in the same way that the father was alive to Jesus. And so it's super important as that we're missional leaders in our context that we reveal the character of the life of Jesus, the kind of life that he's now living, and show people how that's both the basis of followership and participation in mission. And that the notion of Jesus being alive and being with us, being present with us, is the basis for us having confidence and peace in mission rather than anxiety and angst and conflict or the things we worry about with mission going wrong. So secondly, showing that Jesus is alive and that 
that uh, missional leadership is a participation in that life, we then want to cast a vision for, well, what does participation look like? How would it be that we would participate in the aims of the living Jesus? Right? Jesus said to us, come follow me. And he said later in John's gospel, even as the Father sent me, so I sent you. So how do we lead a congregation of people, lead ourselves for that matter, into alignment with participating with what Jesus is already doing in the earth? So um, obviously Tom Wright helped me think about this and another author that just now went out of my head have helped me think uh, deeply about the issue of the aims of Jesus. I mean, to what was Jesus self-conscious? Have you ever wondered these sorts of things? Or what did Jesus think the Father was doing in and through him? Did he have a sense of vocation and calling and purpose? And did he understand these things meaningfully and coherently and concretely? Or what about his proclamations about the final and full inbreaking of the reign of God? Did they point to any sort of reality? Did they correspond to reality? What about his other teachings? What about his deeds of power? Or do we suppose, and of course I don't think we would, but just hear this with me, or do we suppose that he's unaware of his own significance and he's just sort of drifting through life spouting obscure sayings? And what I want to say is that when you look at the totality of Jesus's life, his words and his works, that his vocabulary, his themes, his tones, they differ with every conversation partner he had. So we have to ask ourselves then, what gave these various teachings and interactions of Jesus a center of gravity? What gave them a controlling perspective, we might say? What was the centering point or the grounding grounds? And I want to say that that to which Jesus was most conscious was this, that he was a revealer of God in his kingdom. So if our churches are going to participate in the mission of the Jesus who is living, it's going to require us casting a vision for what that might look like and calling our churches to mission on the basis of participating with this living Jesus. And to do this means we need to center mission in the kingdom of God. Now, we talked about that a lot in our first year, four years ago, but I want you to hear it again as we get into this idea this year of missional leadership. I love the way that uh, Peterson has Jesus saying this in the message in Matthew 5. He has Jesus saying, look, you're kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. Again, that is just, for me, such a remarkable bit of imagination that for me, being a missional person, a missional leader, means that I'm just trying to live out my God-given identity. I'm just trying to live graciously and generously towards others. And when those sorts of things are put in practice, we often call them programs or ministries or approaches or something. But they work best when they come first out of an imagination that I'm simply cooperating with what Jesus said was core. So what are some things that we need to do to cast a vision for mission as participation. There's a couple of things that I want to talk about. I think, first of all, that we need to call people to this by teaching and explaining. I mean, this the, the issues of the kingdom, I think part of the reason it's not often picked up or not universally picked up is that it's subtle. It's got some complexities to it. It's got some nuances to it. It's not just as simple as, you know, so easy to say, um, say this prayer so that when you die, you can go to heaven, that, that sort of rendition of the gospel. And you all know me, I'm not putting anybody down when I say that. I just mean to say that fits on a bumper sticker. It fits, you know, it's a nice slogan, so to speak. And when you begin to talk about the ruling and reigning of God from pre-creation intentionality all the way to fulfilled telos, there's so much nuance and subtlety and complexity there that it takes just patient teaching patient explaining, showing people how participating in Jesus, for instance, is not just for extroverts. It's not just for those who have the gift of evangelism. What we want is for every person in our congregation to think this. The call of God on your life to participate in the life that Jesus is now living goes like this. Notice, discern the most honest you. Your gifts your background, your personality, 
and then ask yourself, how does that participate or align with or not the cause of Christ? And how can I lead others to do the same, to notice their most honest self? When I think about this, I often think of my wife, Debbie. Debbie is the least public person you would ever meet. I don't know that she's really an introvert, uh, um, but she definitely does not like stages. <laughs> but that can have nothing to do with introverts or extroverts. But she doesn't like public speaking. She would never want to in any way seen in any way that seemed public. But when we were at the Vineyard Anaheim, um, even while battling breast cancer, Debbie would cook for two or 300 people in our home. She, she gathered a little group of, of, of her friends and they would come over and they would pray for her as she's you know battling cancer. And together they would cook in our kitchen for, I can't remember, it feels like it was at least a couple hundred people on this Alpha course at the Vineyard Anaheim. Well, that was Debbie being her most, most authentic self, noticing who she really is, somebody who has the gift of hospitality and generosity and who loves cooking and making other people happy through food, providing a welcoming environment that you want on Alpha through food. It was her way of saying, this is my most authentic self, and this is what it means for me to participate in the aims of Jesus. So the second thing is that sort of patient teaching and explaining that helps people get to there. Secondly, we need to work both personally and corporately on what I call alignment. So that I think the focus of missional leadership in a congregation can be summed up in that word alignment. And that is that a missional leader is trying to take the whole of church life from vision and values and goals and objectives to plans and programs and personnel and church budgets and bring them all into alignment with being the sent people of God and bring them all into alignment with seeking to live in alignment with the aims of Jesus. All right. So firstly, I've said that we need to say that Jesus is alive and that missional leadership is living within that life that Jesus is now living. Second, I've said that we need to uh, reveal this life. And now I want to talk about what it would mean to call people to it. So calling people to participation, this I think is the vision and basis for doing so. You may not have have, uh, ever had this thought, but I suggest it to you. That if, if you wonder what is human nature, And obviously, we don't have time for a long philosophical, ontological conversation about that. I just want you to think of it this way. What is the core essence of human nature? And I want to say that participation with God is core to what it means to be human as God intended. And that that is not primarily an ontological thought, or at least not an ontological thought only, but it's a missional thought. Here's what I mean the key to what we call human nature is to be the cooperative, sent friends of God. That is not a megachurch idea. That's not a church growth idea. That's not an evangelical church idea. That is is the notion of God that in creation, I'll say more about this in a moment. uh, You know, God says sort of paraphrasing paraphrases, hey, first humans, Look at this amazing new creation. Come work with me in it. That that predates the fall. That predates, therefore, anything that we'd think about in in soteriological um, terms of how one gets saved and grace and works and all that. Fundamental to being human, fundamental to divine nature is working with God. So I just hope that you'll sit with that some and that you'll think through that in leading your people to be, quote, missional, you're not trying to kind of work against yourself or be something that your church isn't or something, or you're not trying to drive your people into being something they're not, like extroverts suddenly or something, or very public people. What you're actually trying to do is not get them first to think in some way that seems foreign to them, outside of them. You're trying to get them to think of what's fundamental in me, that fundamental to my human nature is that I'm meant to be the cooperative friend of God. Well, this is an intuitive, right? So we then have to wonder, why is this a hard sell? 
And I think it's a hard sell because at least in the Western world, the developed world, we now have several generations of human nature being described as something like striving for total liberty. So that what's thought of now as fundamental to human nature is the primacy of the human will and the human will bent to achieving one's own wants and one's own desires. And that, of course, cannot facilitate an imagination for participation with God. And this is why I want to say that without the reality of the living Jesus and without human nature defined as cooperation with him, that's all that's really left to us then is our own disordered desires, or as Paul talked about, futile thinking, or as we might think about today, we're just left with sort of the pressures that are put against us with political correctness from whatever angle and religious pressure groups. And when that is what is core to someone's imagination, they just can't hear this business that no, my fundamental human nature is defined by being the cooperative friend of God. So I think the kind of key missional insight here is, is that missional leadership assists people in coming to want what God wants and to work towards those ends, towards his telos. Well, <clears throat> I'm speaking to you today from Franklin, Tennessee, and uh, we have a lot of pollen in the air for some reason. I didn't know they had pollen in the air here so much in the fall, but I get pollen alerts on my phone every day, so it's making my throat scratchy, so I, I need a little drink of water here. You might see that I'm drinking smart water. <clears throat> That's because Fitz told me if I drank it, I might actually get smart. We'll see. All right. So <clears throat> the first and really lasting temptation of humanity, and this is why we have a hard time getting that imagination that my truest self will be discovered and formed in being the cooperative friend of God, there's something in us all the way from the first, human, the first humans up to today, this lasting temptation is don't trust God. You actually can't trust him if you want to make sure you get what you want. And so therefore you have to take things into your own hands. And this, I think, at least psychologically, social psychology is what we battle with day in and day out, trying to move our congregations into missional living. As you can see, that's a very different thing than saying no, to mean to be human means I give my life as a living sacrifice, that I'm trying to live into the creation covenant. I'm trying to live into the call to work with God for his good intentions for creation. Now, you know, this comes to us shiningly in Psalm 8, where the psalmist wonders, what is humankind? And then answers the question saying they're the cooperative friends of God and that they strive towards the good as defined by and in alignment with God's divine intention, as I say, all the way up to his telos. And then, again, I'm trying to work on your imagination here. There's this staggering uh, sentence in Hebrews 2.5 that says that God did not give the telos of his creation, the ultimate fulfillment of his creation, to angels. You might remember this text. But, and then, the writer of Hebrews goes on to actually quote Psalm 8. He says, but God gave the end, the, 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 the moving towards his ends, that was given to humans in fellowship, in followership and in cooperation with Jesus. So this, again, I want to argue is the fundamental role of humanity. And I just think it's a fresh sort of... Um, backdoor, maybe sideways angle at getting admission that gets away from the things that normally scare people. Like that's not what kind of church we are, or, well, I'm not an extroverted person, or I don't know where to begin, or, you know, all those objections. I think that we can find ways uh, to deal with them if we can just get people to see something more fundamental, that the fundamental role of humanity is being God's cooperative friend. And this is the deepest rationale and vision for missional living. It's rooted both in creation and into the end of the story. Revelation 22.5 says of those who are in heaven with God that they will be ruling and reigning with him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. So this story begins with cooperative friendship in the garden. 
and it ends with cooperative friendship in the renewed cosmos. It's fundamental, and human nature fits in that. And when we can't help people see that, then we're left to arguing on these other secondary or even tertiary levels, and we have a very hard time leading congregations into missional living. So I just want you to think today about the created dignity and missional calling for every human being, that God is seeking to create a people for himself who have the character and power of Jesus himself. And so missional leadership seeks to move people in all their constituent parts, right? Heart, soul, mind, will, body, social self. Missional leadership seeks to move people in this direction of loving God, loving neighbor, loving enemy. And this is why when Jesus comes on the scene and announces the good news of the gospel, the first two imperatives are repent and believe. Rethink your thinking. Like what if human nature can't be reduced to your economic desires or your sexual desires or any other sorts of desires? What if human nature is understood only in relationship to the purposes of God for humanity? So if you can see that and you see you're out of alignment with it, Jesus said, repent. And then he said, believe. Place your confidence that what I'm telling you here is true. And I want to say to us who are seeking to be missional leaders that we first do this, we repent, and we place our confidence in Jesus and his gospel of the kingdom. And then we help others do it. And as we do it and we help others do it, we will then be laying the basis for all the practices of missional living. Well, number four, I said that a missional leader also has to form souls for participation in mission. And the reason I say that is because one's heart or one's soul, one's spirit, that's the source of our words and deeds and decisions. It's not usually ideas or concepts or or arguments over missional ideas. What has to happen is that our souls must be bent in the direction of Christ's likeness or they'll be twisted by the various temptations of life. And this is why we always talk about formation and mission together here at the Telos Collective, that there is a really important missional importance that's connected to our formation in Christ. And there are a lot of ways that we could talk about this, but let's just think for a moment about that famous story in Acts where Cornelius first has to get converted before he can participate in the missional conversion and filling of the Spirit of Cornelius in his household. That is to say, something had to happen in Peter's heart, in his mind, his soul, his emotions. We don't know exactly what, but God had to go to a lot of trouble to first form Peter by those visions so that Peter then, being a different sort of person in his heart, soul, mind, will, was able then to move with the Spirit into Cornelius' house and do what God wanted him to do. Well, I want to suggest that those sorts of formational things are true for all of us. We have biases, prejudices, points of view, um, historic practices, all sorts of things that are errant. And if we're not willing to go through that process of our own heart, soul, mind, will, emotions, our social self being transformed in Christ, it will limit our missional effectiveness. So for me, then, that always raises the question, well, how do we become the kinds of people who both would do that, that is to say we desire it, and could do it, that is to say we have the capacity to actually live in to the life and ministry Jesus commended? Or I think of it this way, how do we develop a church that can be non-anxious, winsome, gently outward-looking, full of humble confidence with a childlike joy of learning and a childlike joy of adventure? And I want to say the answer to this is somehow coming to embrace the rhythm of Jesus's life. I think I first had this vision 20 or 25 years ago when the the message version of the Bible first came out. I had to go on a really long trip to Australia or New Zealand or something. And so I took my little paperback version of the message and thought, I'm just going to read through the Gospels on this long trip over there and see what I can figure out from Jesus. And I remember, of course, lots of things came to me, but the one I've never forgotten is I, for some reason, I saw that Jesus was a simultaneously very private person 
who would just split from the disciples and go into a desert place or in a garden or up on a mountain or something or tell them go away and he would stay where he was. So he was simultaneously practicing silence and solitude, orienting himself to the will of the Father. And I believe it's from those sorts of things that he then came into public and lived this dramatically public life in which he said, I only do what I see my Father doing. I only say what I hear him saying. Or he said the son can do nothing on his own, only as the father guides him. So you just have to ask yourself, how did Jesus know what to say, what to do? How did he know what the father was doing? Well, it's because he lived this simultaneity. Uh, he lived simultaneously in this sort of rhythm. Think of it like a, the tick-tock of a grandfather clock where he would be away in private and then out in public. He would disappear and call disciples. He'd be gone again and heal the sick. He would be gone again and preach the good news of the kingdom, going from village to village, from public to private, and something like that is absolutely crucial to us forming souls for participation in mission. Well, lastly, I say that we need to facilitate the reception of the Spirit in our congregations to enable this sort of participation in mission that I'm talking about. You'll remember the scripture in Luke 24 where Jesus says, I'm going to send you what the Father has promised, the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. Well, why? They'd been apprenticed by Jesus for three, three and a half years. What, what was it more that they needed when Jesus said, well, you, need to be, you need to be clothed with power from on high before you go out and engage in mission? Well, this is why I want to say an engagement with the third person of the Trinity is fundamental to mission, missional living. It's not something the Charismatics do or the Pentecostals do. It's not something that certain traditions of the church do. It's got nothing to do with denominations. It has everything to do with missional living. It's the spirit, the text tells us, that equips us for ministry. It's the spirit that gives us authority. It gives us this sense that we have the right to act as God's ambassadors. It's the spirit that gives us power. It gives us capacity, the ability to do what our rabbi did. It's the spirit that transforms our character. Think of Galatians 5. And it's the spirit that gives us gifts. You know, think of Romans and 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. It's the spirit that gives us the abilities that we need in any given moment. So those are the five things that I've suggested. In conclusion, I want to say this. There's a lot of anxiety and conflict these days. That's clear. And so what I want to do is with that anxiety and conflict, both in the culture and in our churches, as our churches battle over cultural things, and as we work to turn our churches gently but effectively outward, I want to close with this vision for missional leadership, going back again to it being as a, a participation in the peace of Jesus. I think being at peace for the world happens best when we experientially know that God is always already present and that he's promised, I will be with you. And that the kingdom of God is not far off, but is a this world reality. And that the kingdom of God is never at risk. Lots of other things might be at risk in our hearts and minds, but the kingdom of God is never at risk and humanity remains God's project. Well, I think those notions, I notice what they produce in me, and I want to suggest that they would produce in our congregations a people of God who are then gentle, who have peaceful habits of heart from which we love extravagantly, take joyful risk in mission, tell the truth with gentle peace, and forgive generously. And in so doing, these missional activities, the church, as one scholar puts it, cultivates a distinctness that points to the future while living and working peacefully in the world's present. I thought today, just before I was to give this talk, to say to you, I don't usually talk about these uh, personal things, but <clears throat> I've been thinking about this issue of mission being a participation in the life of Christ for many, many years now. And I have a little prayer that I often pray um, throughout the day, or especially if, you know, something uh, that really has my attention, something important is happening during the day, I'll often just say, okay, Lord, here we go, me and you, let's go do our work together. Just think about that. Okay, Lord, here we go, me and you, let's go do our work together. Like my, my notion of myself 
is that I am simply the cooperative friend of Jesus. And prayer then just becomes me and God talking about the things that we're doing together. So I've said that missional leadership is a participation in the life Jesus is now living. And thus, I want to ask you now, each one of you listening to this, each one of you who is a leader, I want to ask you now and in the days to come to commit to these core practices that you settle in yourself. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. That's the path to participation. Hear afresh. Sit with it if you need to for a few minutes or a retreat. Come, follow me. Or hear Jesus say to you again today, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Or think of that beautiful passage in the upper room, John 13, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet and says, I have set for you an example to follow. Or think of Peter and Paul and the other places in the New Testament where they simply assert Jesus is Lord. Listen to him. Missional living is first and foremost a participation in the life that Jesus is already living. Okay, we're beginning to welcome people back. Hopefully you had a wonderful break. Uh, thanks for rejoining us. Um, and thank you for all your questions. Uh, of course, we're not going to get to all of them. Um, I've been doing my absolute best to try to align questions uh, and we'll try to hit some of the ones um, that seemed really close to one another uh, or, or were almost repeated. So, Todd, there you are. Are you ready? Yes, ready to go. <laughs> For some of these. Okay, let me start with this one. Um, obviously, your talk was on uh, missional leadership as a participation in Christ's leadership at the intersection of gospel and culture. Uh, a number of questions that came in had to do with like, okay, Got it. Lovely. Wonderful. Can you talk a little bit more about how the church fits into that, into the life with Jesus idea? In other words, how do we, how are we, what does it mean to look like following Jesus together, leading alongside one another? So not just individuals, but talk about it yeah. sort of in the corporate sense of the ecclesia. Yeah. I think, first of all, we have to just cast a vision for that, that the ecclesia and the person um, are meant to work together. So uh, a really healthy person who is apprenticing themselves to the living Jesus <clears throat> and doing so for the sake of others will be a, a positive contribution. Not perfect, of course, but a positive contribution to a community. And a community who has heard the vision of Christianity as life in the kingdom as followers of Jesus and has intended to pursue that will then be the kind of community that releases and blesses and assists and equips uh, individuals for their life uh, in the world. So I think I see a synergism there or maybe something like pedals on a bike uh, where they work together. A, a great model for this in my view uh, was Church of the Savior. Uh, the pastor was Gordon Cosby. Uh, the woman who really wrote about their work was Elizabeth O'Connor. Uh, her books are things like Journey Inward, Journey Outward, Call to Commitment, Eighth Day of Creation, those sorts of things. Um, everything that I've heard in the last 15 or 20 years around missional church, uh, Church of the Savior was doing before it was popular. And that is to say, JR, to try to answer your question, they really took discipleship serious, <clears throat> and both individually and corporately. So that's the journey inward. But they took mission really serious too, and that's the journey outward. If I remember right, they were in the Adams Morgan district of Washington, D.C., and they did everything in their power to transform that neighborhood uh, from, from medical centers to homes for abused women to crack houses to everything. So they were just amazing at both personally and corporately um, trying to live into this vision of that life and ministry is a participation of what the currently living Jesus is doing. I think that was the main point in my talk, JR. It was, I think my main passion, we might say behind it, 
was to cast an, an imagination that like the Jesus we all love in the pages of the New Testament, he's like actually alive. He's, he's not alive in some doctrinal sense or very far away in heaven, wherever that might be, but that he, he actually is still shepherding uh, the cosmos to its intended telos and that we're invited to have our life and ministry within his life. Yeah. Both personally and corporately. So, uh, so am I hearing you saying that, that part of the task then is if you're a, a missional leader, who's also a church leader is really has much to do with the formation of a culture um, in which people are sort of drinking together deeply from a common well of the ways in which like we're aspiring to something together. So it seems like, it, I mean, missional leadership can be taken in this, like, I, I do this, or I'm like this, I have this relationship, this right. identity with God. But the task then, if I'm hearing what you're saying correctly and using this example of um, Church of the Savior would have to do with the creation, some sort of a, of a culture in which people are joined in together. Yeah, if, if I was a working pastor, and when I was, I, I just thought I had to have a three-part rhythm like constantly in my life and in the life of the leadership team. And that is just to say um, the kingdom of God is actually like put in its worst light is like really abstract. Like what for, for the vast majority of Christians, I think like, what does that phrase mean? It's so abstract. Mm -hmm. So I think we all have just a plain old fashioned teaching job and that we need to recover if we've lost it, that, fundamental to being the leader of one of these communities of the kingdom, uh, one of these communities, that these ecclesias that we call churches now, fundamental to leading them is just good old-fashioned teaching, just patiently explaining what some of these uh, abstract things mean. Second of all, I think we have to engage in what I it, sort of mean in quotes, um, biblical prophecy. So I think especially the Old Testament prophets, either the minor so-called or major prophets, the, the way I see their work is they were constantly saying, okay, here's the bullseye of Yahweh. This is what Yahweh's up to. But you, Israel, you're living misaligned to that. And so the prophets would note that gap. They would call out the gap. And then they would call Israel to alignment to the, purpose of, of, to the purposes of God and his people. So that when we hear Jesus going public and asking for metanoete to repent, he's functioning like a prophet. And that's why a lot of his first hearers thought of him as a prophet, because he was very much functioning like that. And I think we have that job in the church as church leaders is to, again, patiently, gently, lovingly, never, we don't have to be jerks to do this, is to just note the gaps in our local communities mm -hmm. and invite our communities into alignment with Jesus. So then the third part for me is picked up in that word invite. And that is, I think we have to evangelize. We can't let post World War II, late 20th century um, caricatures of evangelism and evangelists stop us from making the ask. Every leader has to make the ask. Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to come with us as a community as we try to follow Jesus? So we patiently explain, we point out gaps, but then we have to make the ask. Um, look, we're trying to follow Jesus for the sake of others. Um, would you like to join in that? Would you like to join with Jesus in the renewal of all things? Mm -hmm. And would you like to join with us as we're seeking to do that? So those are the practices I think that are really helpful for missional leaders. Yeah, thanks. That actually speaks to a number of questions that sort of came in from different angles. So that's really helpful. Uh, okay, another couple questions, um, I think sort of keyed in on some of the phraseology you used about, about your truest self. Yeah. Uh, and so let me read two questions and you'll kind of see how they go together. Okay. One, uh, does the search for the truest self turn the microscope of discovery in the wrong direction? A feeling that might ring too closely with a post-Christian Enneagram-ish yeah. type spirituality. Um, and then I'll pose this question alongside it. How do we know if we're allowing ourselves to truly be led by the spirit in any given situation? So yeah, I wonder if you could respond to those. Yes, I didn't mean to imply a 
a search for your truest self and certainly not a neurotic search for our truest self. I, I of course don't mean to imply that. What I was trying to say is you have a truest self. I have a truest self. Uh, I am, I am made in the images of, in the image of God for the purposes of God. So there is a, I like to say Psalm 139 reality in me, whether I've discerned it or not. That is before I was born, God shaped me in my mother's womb. There's, there's an intentionality for human beings that um, both precedes and transcends personality inventories of any kind. They can be useful um, because I think um, fundamental to broken, the broken human condition is that we don't understand ourselves and, and we therefore don't understand each other. So I think that's given rise to things like Enneagram and the other, I'm forgetting now, Myers-Briggs and others, you know, those personality inventories, they're fine. I'm not down on them, mm-hmm. but, it, but it wasn't my precise point. My more precise point was there is a thing that, there is a way that things are, and that includes the creation of humanity. And so being truest to our true self is to, is to not so much discover that, it's to... I'm thinking out loud here with a bunch of friends, submit to it, discern it, give ourselves to it as children. Um, That's more what I was getting at than I don't want people to think I've, I've got to sort of go discover my truest self. I was more saying that you do have a true self and it's, it's your calling in God and to be the people of God. Now, having said that, um, there is a sense in which the pursuit of understanding one's gifts mix, understanding one's temperament, understanding one's family of origin, those sorts of things. Like I said, I don't in any way mean to criticize them because there's a sense in which we can only participate. <clears throat> Again, if we take serious Jesus, Luke 24, 49, wait until you've received power from on high. When that power comes to us, at least in Paul's view, it comes to us in um, in these charismata, or in Ephesians, I think it's doma for gifts. So there is a sense in which the Spirit does give us gifts. And so, again, I, I don't want to be down on like gifts inventories, because I think coming to know how the Spirit has wired us and the gift mix we have, there that's important bits of discernment. And I think that's that should not be lumped together with what some people might think of as sort of cheesy um, um, you know, temperament, personality things. So a quick, for instance, for me, my wife, Debbie, is the exact opposite of me. She would never have a microphone in front of her face in a million years. She would never be on stage in a million years. She literally just no way. Um, but she has a great gift of hospitality and she happens to be a great cook. So I, I just always have this lovely, lovely memory of, I forget what my job was at the time, but we were at the Vineyard Anaheim. I can't remember if I was national director, if I was pastor of the church, I don't remember the year but they were running the alpha course. And I think they had like 100, 150 people on the alpha course. And Debbie had just gotten diagnosed with breast cancer, but every, whatever it was, Wednesday, uh, a group of two or three or four people would come to our home, just in our home kitchen. And Debbie would cook for the alpha course with her friends and, and they would pray for Debbie and it became, you know, kind of a thing. Well, that was Debbie understanding in particularity her true self but then taking her sort of true humanities, I was trying to say, and give it to the cause of helping people come to Christ. So she was never going to be like me standing on a stage, as I've done hundreds of times and asking people to follow Jesus. She was, she had to, she had like discovered who she was. And that's the sense I think, Jar, where sometimes people think about how did I discover my truest self? And maybe people don't really understand that. And I suppose, sorry, this is a long answer, but I suppose that makes room for things like, um, like what Matt and Ben are doing with gravity, um, spiritual directors. Um, I have an executive coach still at my age. I have a spiritual director and an executive coach always have, because I just know that, um, self-understanding in the granulated sense is a lifelong process. And it actually, it actually can change an era from era to era. But again, what I was trying to do today was make more that fundamental point that fundamental to human nature is our participation in what God's doing on the earth. Yeah. I think that's a helpful answer to that question. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Okay, there's an, another pair of questions here that I think were submitted separately, but um, are in the same vein. So the first one is, uh, what are some ways a missional leader can help move um, an already flourishing, but not God-led community mm. into a community life that is God-led? So I don't know, I suppose that friend means, you know, a community where like that uh, the external appearances look like yeah. this is a flourishing church, but but maybe you wouldn't discern that Jesus uh, and the spirit of God were really at the center of it. The other question is when you're in a context where formation has been neglected for a long time, mm. where do you start? It's easy yeah. to sacrifice formation when you see all the work that needs to be done in the church. So let's just, I don't know if this was anticipated, but let's pretend that the person who submitted that second question doesn't have in mind a, a, an externally looking flourishing church, but a floundering church. Mm -hmm. Look at that on the fly alliteration, flourishing and floundering. <laughs> so whether you have a, like a, a church that looks like it's flourishing or a church that looks like it's floundering, but in both cases, you perceive that like there's a lack of God, of Christ-centeredness and of an orientation towards spiritual formation. Can you say a little bit about if you were in that situation, how you would be thinking and engaging as a missional leader? Yeah, my, my mind immediately goes back again to vision casting. Um, uh, lots of you on this call um, will know Wimber, um, uh, sorry, uh, will know um, Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard, will know Dallas's uh, little three-part thing from Renovation of the Heart, uh, vision, intention, and means. And I just think that's extraordinarily powerful, not just for personal spiritual formation, but over the years, um, I was one of Dallas's readers as he was writing that book. And we kept trying to make it more and more simple. And over the years, I've, I've come to um, adopt what Dallas meant personally. I've come to adopt it corporately. So, I, so I'm sorry if this is a little repetitive, but I think it's the true answer, is I would begin in both those cases with vision casting. So in the first case, um, a church that is, you know, let's say in, uh, in every other way, a basically good church, but just really doesn't get the kingdom, I would start with vision casting. I would literally start with Mark 1, 14 and 15 or Matthew 4, 17. And I would just start explicating. Um, many of you have heard me do this. But so for instance, why were the first words Jesus ever spoke in public that we have recorded? Why were they these? the time is fulfilled. Now, many of you have heard me do this. Was Jesus smart? Did he know what he's talking about? Did he, like, was he conscious of those were his first words in public? Um, you know, to what reality do they correspond? Many of you have heard me, you know, riff on this many times, but I would just go back there. That Jesus was self-consciously emerging in a story. And he knew that everything preliminary to him from Adam and Eve to Noah, to Abraham, patriarchs, um, judges, kings, prophets, John the Baptist, to that moment when Jesus goes public in Galilee, Jesus is acutely aware that he does not arise out of the blue. He arises within a context and that he is the beginning of the end and that he is the assurance that, that, that pre-creation divine intentionality is going to find its consummation, its telos. Well, so I would try to get a church to do that. How do we place ourselves in this story corporately and individually? And so that's, I mean, I think it just begins with good old fashioned vision casting, good old fashioned teaching, explaining. Um, because again, I don't, I don't mean this in any way condescending. I mean, most people are just trying to work for a living. They're just trying to get through life. Now, as we said at the beginning, JR, we have all these huge problems piled upon us. And the average person is not reading Tom Wright or is not reading the divine conspiracy or, you know, Richard Hayes' moral vision of the New Testament or whatever. And, and again, I don't mean that in any elitist way. I just mean it that um, you, let me put it this way. I don't think you can be a missional leader without teaching because it, because what we mean by that phrase, missional church or missional leadership, again, it's so nuanced. It's so complex. In some senses, it's so, uh, 
Oh, I can't think of the word now. You know, it's, a, it's just not a daily word. And so we have to unpack it. We have to faithfully explain it day after day, whether that's making sense of church or in the second case, JR, making sense of formation. Um, <clears throat> I always want to say this, that genuine spiritual formation in Christ-likeness is by definition missional. Because if your heart is being shaped by Jesus, you are going to begin to see the brokennesses in humanity, the injustices, whether they're the woman at the well who had, you might say, kind of a personal injustice or the injustices of the state, you know, with the tax collectors. I mean, you're going to begin to see through a whole different lens once you become an apprentice to Jesus and your heart starts being more Christ-like you're going to immediately see the world in a completely different way. And so there's no such thing in my view of genuine formation. So I guess I don't mean to be unkind here to anybody, but I mean, I guess maybe what I mean to say is there are forms of formation extant today, existing today um, that don't obviously and easily lead to a missional engagement with the world. And I, I guess I would just want to say, sorry, I don't mean to be unkind, but they're deficient. They're somehow not real. I think real followership of Jesus is cruciform. And so our heart begins to break for the things that Jesus' heart breaks for. And then we find ourselves engaged with them. Well, that's what we mean by missional living. Yeah. Okay. Um, so part of that's a good segue, this idea of cruciform. I wish we could let people push back in case I wasn't quite answering the question, but we're stuck. So yeah. well, if, you like push, some... if you want to push back, JR, you're welcome to, if I'm not being clear or something. Okay. Uh, don't, don't worry. I'll, uh, when I need <laughs> smile. Um, there's so, so many good questions here, though, that I, I just want to make sure that we do justice to try to get to, to as many of them as we can. You mentioned cruciformity, so uh, I want to try to pair up these two other questions here. Both have to do with the, the idea that you have in your head when you talk about being cooperative, cooperative friends of God. Uh, one question was, what role does Jesus's cross play in how does that sort of intersect with the idea of our missional friendship with God or Jesus? So I suppose that's sort of like a theological angle on that idea. But another question was sort of along the lines of you said, you talked about, okay, Lord, here we go. Let's do this work together. There was a question about what other, and you, you've just mentioned quite a bit about teaching and sharing a vision. Though, of course, I think all of us who, you know, look at Jesus's relationship with the disciples have an implicit understanding that like there was a, a he, he taught and instructed, but a lot of it had to do with practice right? Follow, mm -hmm. follow me, do what I do, that right. sort of thing. So another question was then, what other kinds of habits and practices have you found particularly helpful uh, in the role of spiritual formation, whether for leaders or for congregations, in terms of helping them have an experiential um, experience? That's not the right way to put it, but have an experience of becoming cooperative friends of God. So yeah, cross I think on I get one side, saying. habits and practices on the other. Yeah. So I think the intersection of cruciformity and mission um, works something like this. Um, I am not my own, uh, to put it in Pauline terms, you know, I'm bought with a prize. But I mean something, I, what I mean includes that, of course, but I mean each of us developing the genuine heart notion that I'm not central to life. Like the meaning of me is in really important ways. Others. Now, again, we have to be careful here. I don't mean a losing of oneself that you don't exist. I don't mean that. I mean, Jesus was onto something when he said, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for others, so what could be a more cruciform statement than that? If you lose yourself for others, you will actually find yourself. So I guess I could just would want to say, hands over my heart, honesty, 45 years of following Jesus and being a Christian leader, my sense of myself is never more robust or more joyful than when I am for the good of others. That's, I just, there's nothing more pleasing. There's 
nothing more grounding. There's um, nothing better than my sense of myself is tied to being to the good of others. So that's the way I'd, I'd answer the, the first part about cruciformity. I think it's, it's right at the intersection of, of a, of a Jesus-based missiology. So can you just say, so I, I think I get that from a, a, the standpoint of like my willingness to inhabit a cruciform life. I think the question had more to do with oh, sorry. Jesus's cross. Like how, how do you theologically understand, oh. I don't know if that's the atonement, if this friend has in mind the atonement, but like mm. the Jesus's sacrifice for us on the cross and yeah. how you understand that in relation Oh, sorry, to didn't misunderstand the question. Yeah. Okay, so I would want to talk more holistically about the Christ event. So I would want to talk about the prophecies of his life, virgin birth, uh, his life, teachings, deeds of power, um, arrest, mock trials, crucifixion, appearances, resurrection, present-day ministry at the right hand of the Father. So I would want to talk about the Christ event, and I would want to put the cross, the actual crucifixion, in the middle of that event, because if you think of if, if you think of it more in terms of the Christ-like life, that brings in both purpose of coming, and the resurrection is obviously no small thing, um, and the beginning of, of the end, um, meaning the beginning of God's uh, in-breaking kingdom, that end which will come is sort of made sure by the resurrection. All right, so, but if what's in view here, if what's behind the question is more soteriological, like is the meaning of Jesus's death simply to forgive us of our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die, um, I would wanna say that a, a, a soteriology thus construed um, is not wrong but it's reductionistic in, I would say, again, I don't mean to be unkind, but it's reductionistic in the absurd. Um, there's just no way you can make that kind of atonement theory or that kind of um, sense of soteriology lead naturally to discipleship or missional living. But if in the cross, we see something more holistic that includes the forgiveness of our sins, it includes regeneration, it includes reconciliation, it includes uh, our sanctification, you know, all those sort of soteriological categories. Yes, of course, the cross includes all those things. And yes, of course, our salvation is completely of grace. No missional thinker I know is confused about that. And, and no careful missional thinker I know of in any way um, misunderstands or misconstrues our cooperation with God as works, you know, especially if works are meant to be meritorious, that our participation in Christ, our seeing ourselves as his cooperative friends is a simply a loving response of a, of a child to his creator. It's got nothing to do with earning, earning anything or, or being works. So I would say that the, the cross um, is the reconciling and the beginning work of the reconstituting of the people of God, reconciling both Jew and Gentile alike to God, which then becomes the basis or the doorway through which uh, in following Jesus, we come to a, a fundamental otherliness. Um, I sometimes like that word better than missional. I feel like, you know, like all of us, I'm probably missional either gets tired sounding or, or people don't know what it means, but otherliness is very concrete. Everybody knows what otherly means. Um, so I, that's, the, I think, the way I'd put it, JR. Yeah, okay. And then uh, if you could quickly, in just a couple of minutes, if you, if you were to talk about uh, habits or practices. Oh, yes, sorry. Um, that you think help people have an experiential understanding of being cooperative friends of Jesus, what might that look like? Yeah, one of the influences of Dallas on my life was him having me read, and now they're going to go out of my head, darn it. Um, Brother Lawrence and the, the various uh, books that have been written um, by sort of the spiritual masters that would suggest that core to both our followership of Jesus and its missional aspect is learning to be present to God. So I think of Ignatius of Loyola, who I practice, examine, you know, virtually every night. So I've developed these practices. So my core practice is the morning is devoted mostly to dedication. 
and to asking God to help me be alert to him throughout my day. Um, during my day, I try to practice noticing. And I'll bet I'm getting into some of Fitch's work here, but that's okay. David has a different voice. So I go through my day trying to notice the presence of God and what God is up to in me and in the people and events of my life. In that noticing, I have little prayers that I use. Um, so I'll sometimes stop during my day before something and say, uh, you know, come Holy Spirit, or I'll stop and say, Lord, in this conversation, may your kingdom come and your will be done. Or Lord, in this meeting, would you help me be truly present to yourself and these people? So I, as I go through the people and events of my day, I pray these little prayers that I call enabling prayers. And I think I write about this in my first book, Christianity Beyond Belief, if you want to see more of it. Um, and then at the end, of, so, so the beginning of the day is dedication. The middle of the day is, let's call it noticing or presence or something. And this would, would have been a big impact on me from Eugene Peterson as well. I mean, Eugene was just constantly talking about noticing, being alert. I sometimes jokingly say that I think Eugene Peterson invented the word alert because that's just that's where I got it from, I think. And then at the end of the day, I practice examine where I go through my day and I just notice in Ignatius kind of language, where did I notice consolation? Where did I notice desolation? And I go through my day often trying to engage it in Thanksgiving. So I have practices like that, JR, that they give me like just tracks to run on so that this missional talk, this, you know, think about it. It's a, it's a big deal to say uh, missional leadership is participation in the life that Jesus is now living. Well, I think that's true, but I think what you're asking is like, how do we make it meaningful? Mm -hmm. And I've just noticed over many decades that I need like tracks to run on. I need these little practices yeah. um, that help me actually do it day in and day out moment by moment yeah well thanks for that thanks again for your talk and for fielding so many of these great questions as we sort of, of welcome great to see you all thank you for being here